Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 10. For they verily or truly, talking about our natural fathers, for a few days chastened or disciplined or corrected us after their own pleasure or how they thought was appropriate. But he being the Lord for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening or correction for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. So we are talking about being partakers or participants, if you like, in His holiness. So, laying again our foundation, because being holy is an inseparable part of who God is. It means that everything He is, everything He thinks, everything He says, and everything He does is holy. It is pure, it is perfect, it is flawless. And we, as His children, are instructed to be partakers of His holiness, to pursue after holiness, and to be holy. We know from the Scripture, and this is very important that we never lose sight of this, that we cannot make ourselves righteous or holy. We do not have natural ability to make ourselves right in the sight of God and to make ourselves holy. But when we are born again of water and spirit, the Bible lets us know that what happens is when we're baptized in Jesus' name, all of those things that are unrighteous and unholy that are on our account are washed away. Our account is clean, but then He fills us with His Holy Spirit. So first He cleans the vessel, then He fills it with His Holy Spirit so that when He looks at us, He has put holiness and righteousness on our account where there used to be sin and wickedness. And only God can do that. And nicest person you know, and we all know nice people. Anybody know somebody that's not a Christian, but you feel like they should be because of the way they are? We all know people like that, right? But the problem there is that that's still depending on our own natural performance. Whereas you cannot be saved by your own natural performance. Otherwise, those that had a a better life and a better upbringing and, and maybe were taught things to do well would have a much better advantage than those that grew up rough. That would be unfair. But the Bible lets us know that we've all sinned We've all come short of God's glory, that there are wages for that sin, but the grace of God is able to bring us to salvation. Amen. So we need to understand that while we cannot make ourselves holy, we cannot make ourselves righteous, that once we become His children, He wants us to respond to that relationship in a particular way. In Romans 12 and 1, says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, I urge you that by the mercies of God or because of how good God has been to you, that you present your bodies. We present our lives, our whole selves, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We looked at a bunch of other scriptures in our first lesson, but to condense that, these are the things that we are required of by the Lord once we have become His children, that we should not defile our temple, we shouldn't bring sin into our lives, that we need to be holy in all manner of conversation or lifestyle or conduct, that we should not be closely connected with things that are the opposite of God, 
that we should be separate from them and in separating ourselves from wickedness that he will receive us and will be our father the things we bring into our lives the things that we keep out of our lives impact our relationship with our heavenly father we should continue to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness that word that's i think that's second corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 if i'm not mistaken that word filthiness means impurities that defile us we need to continue to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit inside and outside we are to choose to grow into a closer relationship with our heavenly father by becoming more like him and keeping ourselves separated from the carnal sinful lifestyle that we needed to be saved from in the first place amen in our second lesson two weeks ago we taught about the role of our hearts and our minds in being holy and we have emphasized and will continue to emphasize that growing in holiness is best understood to take place from the inside out. In reality, the outside is actually pretty easy to deal with. It's the heart of man and the mind of man that God is going to work on until he either returns or we go into the grave to wait for his return. Amen. The outside is important, but God desires to transform the who we are before he influences the what and the how. Amen. So if we allow Jesus to affect change at the level of our thoughts and our intents and our desires, these things will then be revealed in observable ways. We considered that everything we say and do originates in our hearts and minds, which is why yielding or submitting or surrendering ourselves completely to Jesus is so, so important. Because it doesn't matter if we if we polish the outside till it shines like a diamond if there's no transformation going on on the inside we've got the cart before the horse if we can use that old expression we've got our priorities around the wrong way we're you know the lord the lord wants to change every part of us but he's he's not into a makeover he's into a transformation amen we need to remember that so the next focal point in this series is on the easiest expression of our hearts and minds to make but also the hardest to control or tame and that is our tongue or the things that we say james chapter 3 and verse 1 going to read about a dozen verses says my brethren be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation for in many things we offend all if any man offend not in word the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body behold we put bits in the horses mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body behold also the ships which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds yet are they turned about with a very small helm whithersoever the governor listeth or wherever the governor decides he wants to go even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things behold how great a matter a little fire kindles the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity so is the tongue amongst our members that it defiles the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell for every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind 
but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith, or with it, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude or the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries or a vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh water. To paraphrase that passage of Scripture a little bit, James tells us the following. The first verse, he says, don't desire to be in positions or, or positions of authority. He's particularly talking about motive. He said, particularly as teachers, because if you do, you'll be held to a higher standard. He said, all of us can and do offend others. And everybody said, amen. He said that if you never offend anybody with your words, then you are perfect, complete, and lacking nothing, and in total control of yourself. In other words, the godly control of our speech is the greatest challenge for humanity. Amen. Using the example of a bit in a horse's mouth and a helm or a rudder on a ship, James says that the tongue, though only small in size, can make a lot of noise, it can start a great fire, and it can defile our lives. He then said that mankind can tame just about all the animals, but the tongue can no man tame. That's naturally speaking. He lets us know that it's full of poison. He said that there is something wrong if we are using our tongues to bless God and to curse men. For sweet water and bitter water flowing, trying to flow out of the same spout isn't good. Amen. This passage of Scripture, if you haven't got the impression yet, is very strong. And I don't know any Christians who, when they read it or they hear it read, don't find it challenging in the sense of wanting and needing to do better. Anybody relate to that? Anybody read a passage like that and you think, hmm, okay. Lord, back to the potter's wheel. Amen. James makes it very clear that we can defile ourselves with what we say or that we can corrupt or destroy our holiness. Uh, It is a reflection, a very sobering reflection, on the sinful nature of mankind that the most difficult member to control is also the most destructive. You know, if it was hard to control but it wasn't really hurting anybody, maybe not such a problem but it is the hardest to control and the most destructive member. It would seem, and this is only just a comment, but it would seem that this is directly connected to the reason that we speak in other tongues as evidence of receiving the Holy Ghost. Because when that happens, God is taking control, as it were, of that which we cannot control. And we are demonstrating that we have yielded or surrendered ourselves to Him. Amen. So... Let's consider for a little while some of the biblical examples of how we can sin with our speech. Top of the list, talebearing and gossip. This is one of the most vicious sins. It is Satan's primary tool for destroying the church from within. It can destroy confidence in people, it can harm the innocent, and it can hinder the repentant. It splits churches, discourages saints, and disillusions new converts. 
The Bible lets us know in Titus 3 and James 4 that we should speak evil of no man, especially our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Psalm 101 and verse 5 says that whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. New Living Translation of the same verse, it's the Lord speaking, says, I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. Now, many people, even outside of the church, acknowledge that gossip is wrong. Um, But the problem comes with being able to identify it, particularly being able to identify it in our own lives. It's an area of great practical difficulty in the lives of many Christians. And one of the reasons for that is that our lives often revolve around relationships. They revolve around relationships. It's family, whether natural or spiritual, friends, colleagues, neighbors. And because that's our lives are so much about relationship, they're the things that we talk about. They're the things that we talk about. I mean, how often when you greet somebody, particularly if you haven't seen them for a while, what do we do? We say, how's the family? How are the kids doing? I heard your mum was sick. How's she feeling? You know, we, we talk about people because we are interested in people. We're interested in relationships. Amen. So it, it's obviously, we can't just not talk about anything. If somebody comes to me and says, you know, how are your kids? It's like, well, I'm not going to participate in gossip, so I'm not going to answer that question. That's obviously not what it's talking about. But we need to understand what we mean by tail-bearing or gossip in the hope that we will be aware if we are participating in it and then do something about it. Basically, at a simple level, it means telling things of a personal or intimate or sensational nature. It includes spreading rumors that could damage someone. It includes a word we don't use very often, but backbiting or speaking harmfully about someone who's not present. Gossip not only includes lying about somebody or spreading untruthful rumors, but it also includes telling true details of a personal nature that the gossiper has no business revealing. And doing this can be tail-bearing when it is told as gossip to one who does not need to know about it. Amen. This is a a fairly sobering lesson, so I'm quite comfortable with everybody being fairly quiet. I'm not saying that to be funny. I understand. It's the sort of message that makes us all start to reflect and consider ourselves. Brother Bernard, in his book, In Search of Holiness, I took a portion of it that I thought was worth reading when it comes to what we should say, what we shouldn't say, and that sort of thing. He said that God has ordained organization and authority in the church. He said, when problems arise in the church, those in authority should be informed. However, needless tail-bearing to other members of the congregation is not right. Members in the church are not to judge one another. In the church, the leadership can and must judge sometimes in order to protect the flock. This means that leadership does have the responsibility for dealing with sin in the church. It also means that the saints do not have that responsibility. Sometimes certain things must be told for clarification for instruction or for accuracy. But in general, however, telling stories that could be harmful to others is not right in the sight of God. Talbearing and gossip are against the Word of God. Proverbs 26 and 20 says, Where no wood is, there the fire goes out. So where there is no talbearer, the strife ceases. So if you don't add fuel to the fire, the fire goes out. 
The same book, a couple of verses later in verse 22 of 26, says the words of a talebearer are as wounds and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. And uh, Brother Bernard makes the comment, he said, how many churches would have peace if their members really believed these scriptures? As a practical example, and again, this is still from Brother Bernard's book, what should you do if you find out that a certain man, let's, let's go for a man today, pick on the men, who is in the church and calls himself a brother, has committed adultery. You cannot conceal the sin because you don't have that authority. You have to report it to the person in authority, whether it's the pastor or beyond that, depending on the, who the person is involved. If, God forbid, it was the pastor, you obviously don't report it to the pastor. You've got to report it to somebody that watches over his soul. And at that point, the matter becomes that leader's responsibility. But if you then tell everybody else in the church, you become a talebearer. There's a reason for telling the pastor since he must protect the rest of the church and try to help the sinning brother. There is no reason, however, to tell anyone else. If the brother has repented, why tell anyone about the sin? How will it help him to tell everyone else of his fault? Amen. Again, the book of Proverbs, chapter 11 and verse 13, says, A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. That doesn't mean you hide it away. It means you don't broadcast it to everybody. Chapter 17 and verse 9 says, He that covereth the transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth the matter separates very friends or can damage relationships between close friends. Notice that you never have the authority to cover unrepentant sin regardless of who the person is. Amen. When we pass those things on to people that the Lord has placed in responsibility and we leave that with them and the Lord to sort out. Amen. This is especially relevant. I know, again, this is fairly heavy stuff, but this is especially relevant when someone in a position of leadership has sinned. The pastor needs to be informed because the matter can have a big impact on the congregation. And the pastor will usually withdraw that person from leadership but won't stand up and announce to everybody the why and the how. Amen. The next thing on our list of things, there's no shortage, unfortunately, of ways the Scripture gives us that we can sin with our tongue. The next thing on the list is, is what the Bible calls sowing discord. The issue of tail-bearing is serious because it's one of the main ways of sowing discord among the brethren. Sowing discord, if you take the time to read Proverbs chapter 6, there are seven things that are listed in that chapter that are listed as abominations in the sight of God. Sowing discord is one of those seven. And an abomination is something that God hates, something that can keep us out of heaven. Sowing discord involves going from person to person causing dislike, distrust and division by telling confidential things or by constant criticism. Sowing discord simply means you're planting strife or trouble. They're the seeds that you're sowing. The kind of person that sows discord with words is one who thinks he can tell all kinds of things anywhere, anytime and to anyone. These people repeat these things they heard in confidence and obtain through friendship and they are not afraid to criticize anyone. And then to finish off the section from Brother Bernard's book, he says, we should test ourselves in this area. Do we enjoy gossiping about people? Do we enjoy hearing something bad about someone? Do we enjoy telling everything that we know about others? Do we enjoy criticizing or laying blame on others? Do you stir up trouble, dissension, and strife? If so, you need to be careful. If we sow discord, we are in trouble with the Lord. You know, these are things that these are not things that um, 
will necessarily cause us to rejoice and uh, go out of the house, Lord, thinking, man, that lifted me up today. I'm just feeling I could run through a troop and leap over a wall like David, you know. But these things are powerful because if we don't guard, they can split churches. They can destroy people's lives. And we've got to be careful. You know, we've got to be careful if you're a parent, particularly if you're a husband, because really it's kind of on you. Sorry. We've got to be careful what happens in our homes at our dinner tables. Because if we slice and dice at the family dinner table and then come into church and, God bless you, brother, it's wonderful to see you, we're actually destroying the spiritual quality of our families. There's nothing wrong with having pasta for lunch on Sunday as long as it ends with A, not O-R. Think about that for a moment. Okay? You can have spaghetti, that's fine. But please don't go home and have the pasta for lunch. Amen. The next thing on our list is the name of the Lord. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7 says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. The Jews took this commandment so seriously that they would rather not say the name of the Lord than to say it incorrectly. And while I, I, I don't believe that the Lord is going to hold us guilty for accidental mispronunciation, we have the revealed saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, we should call on His name. We should praise His name. We should love His name. We should reverence His name. We should pray in His name. In fact, Colossians 3 and 17 says that whatsoever we do in word or deed, that we should do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. We should not use the name of the Lord in a light-hearted manner and definitely not as a curse word or an expression of anger. It's fascinating to me how the name of the Lord has become a curse word in our society. The interesting thing about the sadly interesting thing about that is that you don't hear about other supposed deities being used as a curse word. I've never heard anybody use Buddha as a swear word when they hurt themselves or any other faith you can think of. And that sounds a little bit humorous, but there is a reason for that. Because the devil understands the power of the name of Jesus. He's not worried about Buddha's name. And so if he can get humanity to treat the name of Jesus with disrespect and dishonor and lightheartedly, he is causing them to defile the name that can save their souls. And as his children, we need to take great care that we don't become too familiar with the name of our God. Amen. His name, you go home and search, you'll find in the scripture there is much evidence that declares that his name is holy. It is holy. That means you look after it. You're careful with it. You treasure it. Amen. Next thing we've got to be careful with, and Australians sometimes are really good at this, is the use of slang. You don't know what slang is. It's, it's using colloquial expressions or words that might not actually be in the Oxford Dictionary, that are maybe some words rearranged or squashed together, and I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but... Many of our slang words have bad connotations and we pick them up without realizing what they mean. To give you a couple of examples that are, some might say, Australian classics, is the word struth and the word crikey. How many people have you ever heard those, you, those words? You, you go home and Google this. I'm not making this up. A quick internet search will reveal that struth 
is a condensation of God's truth. And the crikey is from Christ. So I'm not suggesting that we should cast stones at Steve Irwin, but we need to be careful about the things that we use. We need to know where they come from. You know, when we were, our kids were growing up, and you all know that when your kids go to school, the teachers teach them English, their friends teach them all sorts of other things. We had a rule in our house when my kids were small that if you didn't know what a word meant, you didn't use it. You would come home, ask dad what it means and ask if it's okay to use it that was because kids will just come home spouting what they've heard in the playground not having a clue what it might mean usually in front of your guests or their grandparents at the most inappropriate moment so we've got to be careful amen we've also got to be careful that we don't use watered down versions of curse words if we wouldn't use certain words why should we use their derivatives or their substitutes sometimes somewhat facetiously called Christian swear words. The next thing is filthy communication. Colossians 3 and 8 says, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Ephesians 4 and 29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying or strengthening and building up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. We are the temples of the Holy Ghost. If you're spirit-filled, you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. If you're not spirit-filled, He wants you to become that way. Amen. Dirty jokes, dirty words, dirty actions cannot be allowed to come from God's people. Words that are suggestive of something indecent, indecent sorry, should not come from the lips of a Christian. James asked us the question, can a fountain send forth sweet and bitter water at the same place? It can only really send forth one, you know, because one corrupts the other. If, a few years ago at General Conference, Brother Downs was preaching, our superintendent, he was talking about this principle, and he had a glass of water. And he actually, I think he called, my, my son was a lot younger, and he called Matthew out of the crowd, gave him a teaspoon, and asked him to go and dip it in the toilet in the bathroom. Just dip it and bring it back, and he put it in the glass, and he said, now who wants a drink? Now, how much of the water was actually in there? Very little. Whatever, whatever was still on the teaspoon after Matthew carried it across the auditorium. But there was enough in there that you'd think twice about drinking out of that glass. We've got to be careful what's in this vessel. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 4 says, Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Foolish talking and jesting here is not suggesting that you can't have a sense of humor or that all jokes are ungodly. But when you read the context, particularly verse 3 of Ephesians 5, you'll see that the humor that we are participating in should not be unclean in any way. It should not have double meanings that are unclean in any way. Just because you didn't actually say something doesn't mean that it's appropriate communication for believers. Amen. Ephesians 5 and 12 says that it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done in secret. There are some things we should be ashamed to even talk about. We live in a world where there's no shame anymore. Where everybody talks about everything. But there are some things that we should simply not talk about because of the nature of those things. Next thing on our list is reviling, which is an old English word, but both 1 Corinthians 5.11 and 6.10 instruct us that revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
and that we should not keep company or even eat with someone who is a railer, R-A-I-L-E-R. Both of those words come from the same Greek word, and the meaning of that word is to abuse using words. It can mean to scold or to use harsh, insolent, or abusive language. It's talking about somebody's pattern of conduct. It doesn't mean you have a bad day and yell at the dog. Or maybe we've all said something in our families that we wish we hadn't said, amen? It's talking about if that is somebody's, that's kind of their pattern of behavior, they're abusive. If, they're, if, that's what, if that's how they behave, your regularly says, you don't have anything to do, you don't even eat with those people. And Proverbs 15 and 1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. It always takes two. And the hardest thing is not to respond with how somebody's words make us feel. Because when somebody says something that triggers an emotion, I, could, I don't know a lot about how the brain works, but there's parts of our brain when that happens where it just dumps into one part of your brain and just the temperature just goes up. And we've got to be able to go, hold on. Because the soft answer turns away We've all, if we're honest, had discussions, disagreements, periods of intense fellowship, particularly if we're married, where something small has escalated. And it ended up getting to a point, and we think, how in the world? Maybe you haven't. You're in the minority, not the majority, I'm pretty confident to say, where you've had a disagreement, and you think back to how it started, and you're almost embarrassed at how small it was. But because there were no soft answers... It just kept, you know, ratcheting up. Amen. The Bible lets us know that the apostles were reviled, they were persecuted, they were defamed, and they were made to be as the filth of this world, and their response was to bless. There's your challenge. We'll get onto that a little bit more shortly. The next thing on the list of the many ways that we can sin with our mouths is lying and bearing false witness. Exodus 20 and 16 says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That's early in the book. The end of the book, Revelation 21 and 8, says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. When we were kids, we used to say liars were friars. That's where we got that expression from, was from Revelation 21 and 8. In these and many other scriptures, God shows us how much he hates lies, how much he hates dishonesty. To lie means to make a statement knowing that it is false, especially with the intent to deceive. It can include deliberately giving a false impression or confusing the issue in order to evade the truth getting into that gray area we can even lie in certain situations by withholding information which is vital for the hearer to correctly understand the situation in other words hiding part of the truth that needs to be told is the same as lying we can lie by our actions as well as our words if we deliberately deceive mislead or create a false impression doesn't matter how small the lie it is it does not matter to whom the lie is told and it does not matter for what purpose the lie is told. A lie is a lie. Amen. Amen. So we need to realize how important 
the tongue or our speeches as a part of being partakers of his holiness. Uh, we need to be, be careful. Amen. Uh, in Titus chapter 2 and uh, verses 7 to 8, it says, In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, and sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say about you. Somebody that opposes your faith can't find a way to say, well, you said this, that's not very Christian. We need to be careful that we don't give them, we don't put the bullets in their gun, so to speak. Colossians 4 and 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Psalm 19 and 14, Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Psalm 141 and verse 3 says, Set a watch, O Lord, or a guard, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Amen. And I've got a few quotes that I've put on the slides. I don't use quotes a lot because I think Scripture needs to carry the most weight. But Dr. Talmadge French said that holiness is the godly harmonization of the inner and outer man. Inside and outside being harmonized with what God wants. Another quote I have says that the secret to holy living is living holy in secret. Amen. Charles Spurgeon is famous for saying that holiness is essential to power in prayer. The life must knock while the lips ask and the heart seeks. Amen. So there are a lot, and I haven't given us an exhaustive list, but there are a lot of ways that we can sin with our mouths. And uh, we've all done it. And I'm reasonably confident without being negative that we may do it again. Amen. And, uh, but it means that they're all wrong in the sight of the Lord and that we need to take great care with how we use our words. For some people, that's easier than others. But regardless of whether it's easy or hard, it's required by the Lord. And the power of the Holy Ghost and the Word of God will help us with our speech, particularly from two directions that I want to bring to your attention this morning. Firstly, the more... We are transformed into the image of God. The more that He changes our hearts and minds, that will reflect in our speech. And secondly, as we walk in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit includes both gentleness and temperance or self-control. Self-control is not popular in the world in which we live. It's not popular to our flesh. Nowadays, we use expressions like having filters. Or in other words, you know, checking what you're thinking about before you say it and we can all use some filters amen but uh we should we should strive not to offend the lord or to offend others with our words amen we should we should strive as the children of god not to offend the lord primarily and not to offend others but the reality is the reality is that we will offend and we will be offended and we can all say, you don't have to say amen because we're all wearing the same skin. It comes in different sizes and shades, but we're all wearing the same skin. We've all offended somebody. We've all been offended by somebody. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's completely accidental. Sometimes it's a total misunderstanding and any other possible combination in between. 
Oh, Moses, come here. I need to use you for a moment, if you would, please. Please don't be offended by being used. That would be a bad start. Brother Moses and I have some things in common. We're both guys, obviously. Um, we're both born again, water and spirit. Um, we both have a similar call in our lives of what the Lord wants us to do. Um, we both have interest in the same sport. He goes for the wrong team, but that's okay. I can forgive him for that from time to time. But what are our differences? We obviously have different cultural backgrounds, uh, but even not just our culture, but even the experiences we've had within our cultures. Some of the things that Brother Moses and his family experienced in Africa are difficult for me to even grasp or comprehend. We also have a significant age gap. I could be his dad. I'm nearly 48 and you're 25. 25. I could be Moses' dad. So we, we have these things that we also have very different personalities. Brother Moses is gentle and softly spoken. I'm not often described as either. And that's, I'm aware of that and I'm working on it with the help of the Lord Jesus like we're all working on ourselves. So that's, that's some differences that we have that are pre-existing. But then you have environmental or situational things that take place. Let's imagine this, this, sun, this coming Wednesday night. Okay, we, we come to church for prayer meeting. Now, during the day, Moses has had a rotten day. He's doing work placement at the moment as part of the training that he's doing. And let's say on Wednesday, the, the leader of that place, the boss, whoever it is, just, just gives him a hard time and makes his whole day miserable. And he comes to church thinking, man, I really hope the pastor's able to encourage me and you know, strengthen me tonight. The same night on the way to church, I'm on the phone on my way into the car park with a good friend who tells me he's just been diagnosed with cancer. Or maybe I might be on the phone for an hour with somebody who's letting me know with their best intent at heart how I should be doing a better job. Not that that ever happens. And so when we both hit that doorway, my mind is thinking about, oh man, you know, what Moses think I'm going We shake hands at the door. He looks at me hoping that I'm going to say, how you doing, bro? I've been praying for him. He's going, oh, how you going, Moses? And I walk past him. And he's like... Now, in that situation, he can be offended at me. And I haven't got a clue. And we can sit back there as armchair experts and say, well, he should understand that the pastor's got a lot of things on his mind. Or the pastor should understand he should be in the moment and care for the person that he's with. And you would both be right. But hey, the world we're living in. Thanks, bro. So the potential for offense and misunderstanding, regardless of how much Holy Ghost you have, is there. And so often it's in misunderstanding. It's in both delivery and interpretation of delivery. Sometimes we deliver badly and we interpret poorly. And vice versa. I mean, you've probably all had the experience where somebody's come to you and said, you know, when we were talking the other day, you said this and this and this made me feel like this. And you're like... I don't even remember the conversation and I and that was completely not in, and you, you've just done a bad job of communicating and they've taken that from where they're sitting and they're standing the potential to be offended is everywhere it's as easy as breathing it is that's the fact the reality is that we will offend and that we will be offended and so as spirit-filled Christians this is the key. It's got to be the Holy Ghost, not the Holy Almost. We've got to have the Holy Ghost if we're going to be victorious. We should be striving not to offend, 
but also striving not to be offended. You see, forgiveness is a requirement of holiness. It's a requirement. Let's go back to our foundational text, Hebrews chapter 12, and I want to read verses 14 and 15. We might get to quarter past 12 yet. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many are defiled. So verse 14 is a part of our foundational text in this series of lessons about pursuing holiness, with peace and holiness. Verse 15 continues the instruction. So as a part of following peace with all men and holiness, we must look diligently, or in other words, be careful and make sure that we do not fail of the grace of God. Now, in this epistle, when you understand the general theme of the book of Hebrews, the consistent warning is not to go back to the previous covenant, to go back to the, the Old Testament covenant, and which would be a rejection of the work of the blood of Jesus Christ. This would be a failing of God's grace because rather than trusting in His grace, they would be returning to a system that depends upon their own strength and their own understanding. Okay? So part of our being diligent is that we need to be aware of any root of bitterness sprinkling up. Now, bitterness is a product of unresolved issues and especially offenses that we have not forgiven. Now, you've heard me teach this before, but unforgiveness is not actually a word. And biblically speaking, bitterness is the closest biblical word to the idea of unforgiveness. So let's put some of that together. If I am not, me, Simon Butcher, if I am not following peace, pursuing peace with all men and holiness, which I need if I'm going to see God, if I'm not being diligent, if I'm not putting in an effort, if bitterness or, un, or unforgiveness or unresolved issues can cause me to fail of the grace of God. That's a little bit sobering. Now, is it suggesting that, as in the context of Hebrews, that I'm, I would be trying to go back under the law of the Old Testament? No, that's not what it's saying. What it is saying is that, that I will not forgive. I disqualify my own forgiveness, rejecting the work of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then bitterness begins to fester, because that's what bitterness does. It festers, and it sends out roots trying to take hold of me. And if a root of bitterness springs up, and troubles us is the words that the Scripture uses, or it isn't dealt with, that it defiles or pollutes others, how do you think that will be demonstrated? If somebody is bitter, how do you know? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Amen. When somebody has unresolved issues or unforgiveness, it leaks out in their speech. And if it is allowed to continue and isn't addressed, they wear it on their face like a mask. You cannot cover it with something to disguise it. You can't, you can't cover bitterness or unforgiveness with excessive friendliness. It's a little bit like if you've been working all day out in the garden 
on a hot summer's day and you've been sweating, there's a reasonably good chance you have a fragrance that you're producing. That's about as nicely as I can put it. How do you address that? Deodorant? You go into the house and get a can of whatever your favorite flavor is and just spray it over the top? Will that make the smell just... No, what that does is it combines the two smells. Sister Natalie and I used to work with a chef that used to do that in the kitchen. That was his solution, and it wasn't pleasant. It doesn't deal with the issue. While wearing deodorant is a good social practice, if you've been out working in the hot sun all day and you smell from sweat, you need to be washed. And so if we've got things that are in our hearts that we're not dealing with, it doesn't matter how much spiritual deodorant you put on, you need to be washed. You need to get the blood of Jesus involved and wash yourself in his presence. Ask him to wash you that you might be clean and able to forgive others. You can't cover it. It leaks out. Amen. We live in an age. This is something that tends to get me a little bit upset. But we live in an age, which is a little bit ironic when you think about what I'm about to say, we live in an age where there seems to be only two reactions to choose from when somebody doesn't get their way. They're offended or they're outraged. Everybody's offended and everybody's outraged about everything and everybody. It's, we don't deal with differences. We don't deal with difficulties like people used to. But everybody just gets offended and outraged and then posts and has to tell the whole universe about how offended and outraged they are. That spirit must not be allowed to seep into the church of the living God. That is our society that is not the kingdom of God. Because if your standard response to any difficulty, any problem, any difference of opinion, anything that doesn't go your way or you're not happy with or somebody didn't shake your hand long enough or shook it too long or whatever the case may be, is to be offended and outraged, you will lose your soul. That's scriptural. If we cannot deal with stuff, it'll cost us our salvation. Scripture makes some promises that I wish weren't there, but it tells you you will be offended. It tells us you will have tribulation. They're unfortunately guaranteed in the Word of God. It also requires of us that we should endure to the end. The very fact that the Scripture uses the word endure means it's not easy. If something's easy, you never describe it as being an endurance. You know, I endured that holiday I just had for a week. You know, I endured that sleeping on Saturday morning. Man, that was tough, but I got through. Endurance implies opposition and struggle. We are to endure hardness as a good soldier the scripture says not to be offended and outraged because somebody doesn't like the way we did something or we don't like the way they did something we are required to endure we are required to love our enemies we are required to bless them that curse us we are required to do good to them that hate us we are required to pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you and we are required to forgive 
When you do not forgive, you disqualify your own forgiveness. And I don't know about you, but I don't deserve a single thing that he's forgiven me of. And the fact that he's been willing again and again and again to wash me and cleanse me, set me on my feet, refresh me in his spirit, I do not want to make that under threat. Amen. So you've got to make up your mind. Something else this world is not real good at. Make up your mind that nobody and no thing and no words and no situation are going to stop me from being ready when he comes back. Because when I stand before him and I've dropped the ball because somebody hurt my feelings, you know how pathetic that's going to sound? Standing in the presence of the one that died for us, that we gave up on him because somebody hurt our feelings. I don't think that we'd even be able to say the words. I think we'd just be like, oh, I can't say it. Amen. We must forgive. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 21. Well-known portion of Scripture. It says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Now, as a product of this verse, there is a catchphrase or an expression that is used quite commonly in Christianity nowadays that we should speak life. Anybody heard that before? That we should speak life. Now, I agree with that 100% because we're warned that we'll eat the fruit of it. If we use our tongues to bring death, we'll eat the fruit of that and vice versa. Speaking death really is all the things we listed before. Gossip, tale-bearing, lying, sowing discord, abusing, slandering, on and on and on. But when we consider what it means to speak life, We've got to be careful that we don't interpret that through the lens of the culture that we're in, but rather through the Word of God. Jesus said that He came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. It is the life that comes from Him. So when we speak life, trying to do things from a scriptural understanding, it is not necessarily telling everybody that you're amazing that you're awesome, that you're going to do great things, that you're blessed and highly favored and God's going to, you know, you, can, you have no mistakes. There's nothing wrong. Some of those things may be included. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong and we should go out of our way to encourage one another. But an abundant life from Jesus means that it happens His way. So speaking life, using biblical examples, speaking life... It also includes Jesus challenging the rich young ruler, John the Baptist challenging the Pharisees, Paul confronting Peter, Nathan confronting David, Moses warning Korah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel prophesying of the destruction if the people did not repent. They were not positive, uplifting conversations, but they were speaking life. Because those conversations were designed to bring about a change that the people in those situations might live and not die. That's the Lord's God. God is not willing that any should perish. 
but that all should come to repentance. So sometimes speaking life is designed to bring someone to repentance, to challenge the path they're on. See, that's not how we think, is it? We think speaking life is about always being positive. And I think Christians should be positive. I've spoken about that recently. But there were times when I look back on my own life and present and still to come, there'll be more of them. There were times that my pastor sat me down, told me my attitude was wrong, told me that there were things I needed to change, told me that I'd handled a situation really badly. Did I feel great in that conversation? Nope. But he was speaking life because he was trying to get me lift up the hands that hang down, strengthen the feeble knees, make straight paths for your feet. If what we speak is toward that end, it's life. Amen. I know that's a little different, but if you think about that, what does it mean that we would have life? It means that I would have his life now and that I would live with him. So things that are spoken that help me get there speaking life amen bless the lord holiness concerning our tongue means that i need to take great care what comes out of my own mouth and how i respond to what may come out of yours it's both sides of that situation amen we're going to have communion this morning get somebody maybe just to let Sunday school know if they could come down in a, a couple of minutes please if they're able to I didn't really inform them which is my error you might think it's an interesting connection to have communion with a lesson about how we talk and the things that come out of our mouths but I'm hoping that I might be able to show you the connection is a little stronger than you realize Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1, very powerful, very prophetic portion of Scripture, you know, Messianic prophecy or prophecy about the Messiah. Verse 1 says, Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Speaking about prophetically about Jesus, says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He just looks like an ordinary man. He is despised and rejected of men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. All of this is prophetic of what Jesus would do for us at Calvary. Bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a bad deal that God revealed in flesh sinless flawless the only person to never say anything wrong or do anything wrong would be despised rejected not esteemed carrying our sorrows bearing our griefs and yet we didn't even respect or appreciate that wounded for our transgressions 
But then in verse 7, this is what it says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. No offense, no outrage, no hurt feelings, no throwing my toys out of the cot, no behaving like a child. But everything that was laid upon him because of us, he didn't even open his mouth. First Peter chapter 2, and verses 21 to 23 says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, what did we say that meant? It means he was abused. He didn't revile back. He reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously the new living translation of that verse says he did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered he left his case in the hands of god who always judges fairly there's the key brothers and sisters to dealing with offenses put it in the hands of the one who always judges fairly and let him sort it out. It takes faith to do that. But if you can trust him to save your soul, can we not trust him that everybody answers to him and that he will take care of you?